From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. Good morning. Good morning. We want to thank everyone for coming out this morning. We're excited because it's an election time. This rally was just last month. Black elected officials from Chicago's west side two days before the primary election there. And what the rally was about and what they were asking God to bless was kind of unusual. We pray now, Master, with this election time that you bring clarity and understanding and you bring victory back home to the ones that stand in the... Here's the victory that Reverend Randall is asking God to step in and help with. He wants God to help re-elect Derek Smith to the Illinois State House for the 10th District. Smith had been arrested just five days before this for accepting a $7,000 bribe. He had originally asked for $5,000, and then he upped it to seven and specified it had to be in cash, according to an FBI informant. Allegedly, Smith was getting the money as payment for writing a letter of support for a daycare center to get a government grant. And this is the kind of case that when you hear the evidence, it doesn't seem to leave a lot of room for doubt. The exchange of money was recorded by the FBI. I read the 23-page FBI account of the case. Here's how it went down. The informant counts out the money. One, two, three, four, five. Damn, stuck together. Six, seven. Talk to you later. Smith says, you don't want me to give you yours now? I'm going to get you your two, man. He had promised the informant $2,000. That's on tape also. For bringing in the bribe. And you may ask, how do certain Democratic officials view all of that evidence? Derek Smith has not been proven guilty. He's continuing to run for office. This is Cook County Commissioner Robert Steele. So let's support Derek until any time he's taken into the court system and found in anything that happens at that time. Derek is an innocent candidate that's running for office. We're supporting an innocent candidate who's running for office. Let's support Derek Smith. Let's support Derek Smith. This is the official line of the day from the Democrats, and they came out in force. Five state reps, two state senators, four aldermen, various commissioners, the Illinois Secretary of State, 20 of them are listed on the press release announcing this rally, headlined by somebody who is generally seen as a stand-up guy, well-liked, long-serving U.S. Congressman Danny Davis. We know that our colleague is charged with criminal activity, but we also know that a charge is not a conviction. That's right. But we also know that there are circumstances that concerns us. And right here is where you get to the reason for the show of force by Democrats that day. The other candidate in this Democratic primary was Tom Swiss, the former director of the Cook County Republican Party. He entered the Democratic Party in the primary, according to an email that became public, because he thought it was going to be easy to win calling the residents of the district, quote, low-information voters. Danny Davis said that running a Republican in a Democratic primary was just subterfuge. And we want to make sure that we don't elect a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's right. That's right. That's right. We don't elect a wolf in sheep's clothing. Should ultimately the judicial process determined that Representative Smith cannot serve, then there would be the opportunity to make sure that a Democrat, that a Democrat is elected to that position. And that's why we're here this morning. Support Derek Smith, state representative. 
No defeat. No defeat. Hold a seat. No defeat. Hold a seat. I bring all this up because this week on our radio show, we have a bunch of stories in which people did something bad. Like, you know, endorsing somebody who just accepted a bribe on tape just days before. And they knew it was bad. But it wasn't clear just how bad. After all, like Danny Davis, they had their reasons. And in putting together today's show, we got talking amongst ourselves about how bad actually counts as bad. Basically, we're talking about levels of sin and how to rate the different levels of sin. And, you know, once you get into that game, you really need to turn to a professional. I'm a Franciscan priest, uh, like a missionary priest, uh, Father Agostino Torres. Father Torres works with low-income people, especially young people in Patterson, New Jersey, and very generously agreed to run us through the Catholic notions of serious and less serious sins, or the old Catholic terms for it, mortal versus venial sins. A venial sin, venial comes from the Latin word uh, venia, which means basically to pardon, pardonable, something small. A mortal sin is something serious. The word mortal means something that kills. Um, the three criteria for mortal sin is it's serious, I know it's serious, and with all my faculties, I do it anyway. It's, it's serious, I know it's serious, and I do it anyway. Mortal sins unrepented for send you to hell when you die. Getting right with God again to avoid that can take a long time and real personal change. Venial sins are so small that they're forgiven simply if you show up for mass. So, under this scheme, a white lie, obviously a venial sin, Murder or adultery, mortal sins. The Ten Commandments, often, but not necessarily, mortal sins. Like, for example, the commandment on taking the Lord's name in vain. Um, so uh, John Doe uh, is, is commuting back to New Jersey. He uh, crosses two bridges. The Triborough and the George Washington Bridge is in two hours of traffic. And then he gets home finally after driving home. And his, uh, his son runs over him. Uh, with his bike on his foot, and he uses the Lord's name in vain. Is that a mortal sin? It's grave matter. It's serious. But if, if you were to bring me that situation, I would say probably not. What you're saying is that context counts. It does, it does count, but it doesn't necessarily change what you did. That's also true of intention. Your intentions count. So when Father Torres hears confession, which he does for eight hours a week or more, he asks people what happened, what their intentions were, what the circumstances were, and figures out from that the seriousness of the sin. We sometimes claim ignorance, and that's, some, that's a place where, where people say, well, I didn't know. Like, well, you did. If you had an inkling that it was wrong, then you knew. Um, and we have a, something called a conscience. And a, a principle that we use is you never go against an uncertain conscience. So like, if you have a doubt if this may not be totally right, well, that's your conscience saying, don't do it. Hmm. Um, and oh, that's interesting. I've never heard that. It's, uh, it's bread and butter right there. Um, <laughs> that's how you make your living? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, no. But that's, that's, what I, that's a concept I use often. And, and, and it's, this conversation that we're having, I've yeah. had a thousand times. So, rule of thumb, if you find yourself wondering if something you did was right or wrong, it's probably wrong. But today on our program, we have stories of three people who pretty much know what they are choosing is wrong. They don't even wonder. They know it. 
but they don't think it's that wrong. They make excuses, they dig themselves in deeper. In short, they act like you and me and everyone who has ever lived, witness 77% of Illinois' 10th district, who voted Derek Smith, another term. Stay with us. Line, the postcard always rings twice. So a venial sin, a small sin, just isn't that big of a deal, right? But turns out if you keep committing the same venial sin over and over, if you pile it on, if you escalate, if you become, this is in the words of one priest who we talked to this week, callous of the heart, a venial sin can turn into a mortal sin through sheer volume. That is, a not terribly serious offense can become a very serious one which is more or less what happens in this next story from Alex Bloomberg. Let's start things off by introducing our sinner. My name's Jeff Smith. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. I was an educator there. I worked in the St. Louis City Schools. Um, and then I ran for Congress. Uh, I lost narrowly. Then I, um, I served in the Missouri State Senate uh, for three years. And then I spent last year in federal prison. Now, Jeff Smith will be the first to tell you, the sin that landed him in federal prison was hardly the worst sin of his life. In fact, among the myriad sins you'll hear about in this story, sins involving drug dealing, lying to federal agents, attempted murder, that original sin, the one that landed him in prison, might not even deserve the title of sin at all. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The story begins in 2003 and starts with, of all people, former Congressman Dick Gephardt from Missouri's 3rd District. Dick Gephardt, who'd represented the 3rd District for 28 years, uh, had run for president twice um, unsuccessfully, but was the leader of the House Democrats, uh, decided to retire. And Jeff Smith decided to run for his seat. Now, let me just list the ways this was an utterly foolish decision. Jeff Smith was a part-time political science professor who'd never held any elective office. Not councilman, not dog catcher, nothing. His opponent in the Democratic primary, on the other hand, Russ Carnahan came from one of the most prominent political families in the state. As the Bushes are to Texas, the Kennedys are to Massachusetts, the Carnahans are to Missouri. Russ's dad, Mel, was the governor of Missouri. He died in a plane crash in 2000 as he was running for Senate. Russ's grandfather also served in politics, a seven-term congressman from Missouri. Russ's mom, Jean, served briefly as a U.S. senator from Missouri, and his sister, Robin, is Missouri's secretary of state. Add to this that Jeff Smith was 29 years old, 5'6", 120 pounds, with a funny voice and a penchant for baggy hand-me-down suits. He came across less like a candidate for Congress and more like a well-spoken teenager running for class president. In fact, his own family thought his candidacy was ridiculous. Well, actually, I went to dinner at my family's house, and I told my parents and my brother that I planned to run for Congress, and uh, they laughed at me. Um, My brother was imitating Beavis and Butthead. Uh, If you win... Would you, like, get Secret Service and stuff? You know, stuff, just moronic things like that. My mom said, uh, what are you running away from? Why don't you just settle down and have a normal life? Uh, This is the most absurd thing I've ever heard. Still, there was a method to Jeff's madness. There were 10 candidates competing in the primary. And Jeff figured, as one of the most outspoken and liberal candidates in the pack, he'd be able to stand out 
generate just enough votes to eke out a win over the man everyone considered the frontrunner, Russ Carnahan. Jeff had been a very popular part-time professor, and a lot of his former students began to volunteer for his campaign. This volunteer force of 20-somethings grew steadily into one of the biggest and most well-organized ground games in the primary. And Jeff Smith had another valuable asset, his best friend, Steve Brown. I guess that you would say I was uh, chairman of the kitchen cabinet, so to speak. Steve Brown and Jeff Smith had first met during Steve's failed bid for the state legislature in 2001. Jeff had been Steve's campaign manager. And during that campaign, they discovered they were each other's political soulmates. They had the same principles, the same beliefs, the same obsessive interest in the details of political strategy. They would spend hours a night discussing the nuances of messaging, how best to implement a get-out-the-vote campaign, whose political fortunes were rising and whose were falling. And when Jeff told Steve he was running for Gephardt's seat, Steve, unlike Jeff's own family, was immediately behind him. Steve was not an official member of Jeff's campaign. He had no formal role. But his unofficial role was big, because Steve, unlike Jeff, came from a wealthy and politically connected family. My specific goal was attempting to help him introduce him to people that would help him raise money. My family had spent a lot of time in uh, democratic politics in the state, and doing other charitable work as well. And I had access to people that could write him checks, and my job was to put him in front of those people. And that's, if I had a specific role, that's what I would try to do. One other thing that must be said, Jeff Smith was a very gifted campaigner. On the trail, he was funny, sincere, great in front of a crowd. Whether that crowd was a bunch of liberal college kids at a coffee shop in St. Louis, or a group of wealthy donors in the suburbs. And over the course of the race, Jeff's campaign steadily gained momentum, attracted more volunteers, more money, and professional campaign consultants. One sure sign that your campaign is doing better, more and more professional political types come forward to try and sell you their services. And it was an encounter with one of these types that sent Jeff down his windy, improbable path to prison. Here's Jeff. We were approached by a man uh, named Skip Olson, who was... He sort of billed himself as a practitioner of political dark arts. Uh, He also claimed to be very close to the governor. Uh, Apparently, he had spent the night in the governor's mansion, had raised money for for the governor and lieutenant governor. Skip presented himself as a seasoned media consultant who wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. Jeff said no thanks. But as the campaign heated up and entered its final months, it became clear it wasn't going to be enough for Jeff just to plant more yard signs than his opponent. He needed to attack Carnahan. And Jeff had just the issue he wanted to hit him with. When Carnahan had served in the state legislature, his attendance record was dismal. He had missed more votes uh, and more days of work than, than almost any of the state legislators and had passed no meaningful legislation. So when Olson came back to Jeff's campaign to offer his services again, the campaign took him up on it. Two of Jeff's staff members met with Olson and shared Carnahan's attendance data with him. Olson was going to send out direct mailers to voters in the district, highlighting this attendance record. The problem was, Olson was going to do this as an independent expenditure. Now, for those not schooled in the intricacies of election law, an independent expenditure is money that can be spent on ads, mailers, whatever, that is not subject to campaign finance limits. The Swift boat ads from 2004 targeting John Kerry, those were independent expenditures. The catch is, there's supposed to be no coordination between the group putting together the independent expenditure and the campaign. So for members of Jeff's staff to be coordinating with Skip Olson on these mailers was illegal. 
even if the coordination involved nothing more than supplying him with publicly available data on Carnahan's attendance and voting record. Now, Jeff knew all this, but he gave it the go-ahead anyway. Uh, my two staff people came back to me at headquarters. They said, this guy wants to do this independent expenditure. And instead of saying, I don't want you to meet with him, I said, hey, I don't want to know any of the details, which was, you know, essentially giving tacit permission for them to, uh, to go and, and uh, give him that information. This was Jeff's first sin. The minute he knew that his staff people were coordinating to produce an independent expenditure, he was complicit in this illegal act, and he knew that. And Jeff and his staff met more than once to discuss Olson and the mailer. The coordination continued. But as sins go, especially political sins, it didn't seem that bad. The political equivalent of jaywalking. Jeff figured this is the sort of thing that happens all the time. The campaign put Olson in touch with Steve Brown, who found some money to pay him. And that part was legal, by the way. Remember, Steve Brown was not an official member of Jeff's campaign. And Jeff says he just didn't think that much about Olson. My focus was 600 volunteers, making sure that I had 20 full-time interns who were all college kids or high school kids, and I had a great field director. I wanted to make sure they were all knocking on doors. I wanted to make, I needed to raise the money to make sure that we could get up on black radio, that we could do TV ads, that we could fill out our direct mail program. I mean, really, it was, I, I, I doubted that it would ever happen because I didn't view uh, Skip Olson as being a credible person, and I doubted that he'd ever follow through with it. For weeks and weeks, it seemed Jeff was right to doubt. But then, in the final days of the campaign, Skip sent out the mailers, postcards, to addresses all over the district highlighting Carnahan's attendance record. Jeff didn't even know the mailers had gone out until Jeff's press secretary got a hold of one. He shows it to me, and it was this amateurish thing. I mean, it looked like a seventh grader did it, you know, at the last minute, you know, after procrastinating for three weeks on his end-of-the-semester project. It was not well done. Um, And we immediately noticed that it lacked a disclaimer. That is, that little thing at the end of all political ads, paid for by citizens for fairness or taxpayers for justice. See, the way an independent expenditure is supposed to work, a separate entity is formed and registered with the Federal Elections Commission, the body in charge of federal election law. And the name of that entity is supposed to be present on all the political materials it sends out. Here's Steve Brown. And for whatever reason, I certainly didn't know that he was going to do it. He put on there sort of a bogus disclaimer saying paid for by rustycarnahan.org. Okay. Uh-huh. I don't know I don't know why he did it. If he had put the regular thing on there, it wouldn't have and they had found out that I was involved, it wouldn't have bothered me in the slightest. I don't we didn't want him to do that. He did that. And what and was he supposed to say? Paid for by what was it supposed to say? Voters for Truth, which was just a entity that he had created to conduct right to, to conduct business. But that was the voters. entity that had all the the T's crossed and the I's dotted and all that sort of stuff. It was legal, yes. basically. Yeah. It was. It was a. It was like a. Yeah. It was a committee, or mm-hmm. it was an independent expenditure set up properly. Putting a disclaimer on a political mailing is a pretty basic thing. To this day, it's unclear why Skip Olson didn't do it. But since he hadn't, there were now twenty-five thousand disclaimerless postcards out there, and the amount of damage that that one omission opened the door to is truly staggering. What happened in this case is that Russ Carnahan also noticed that the mailer lacked a disclaimer. He noticed Jeff Smith holding press conferences raising the same exact points about his attendance record as the mailer did. And he probably noticed as well that when you clicked on rustycarnahan.org, you came to a page with an illustration of a barefooted person on a beach napping in a hammock. 
And so, with roughly a week before the election, he filed a formal complaint with the FEC, saying essentially, here's this illegal mailer, I think Jeff Smith is behind it, investigate please. And then, about a week later, election night came. The race was much closer than anyone thought it would be. At several points during the night, it looked like Jeff might actually win. But in the end, he was edged out by Russ Carnahan. Final margin of victory, less than 2,000 votes. A day or two later, Jeff met with Russ Carnahan in the obligatory water-under-the-bridge post-primary fence-mending session. I said, hey, you know, congratulations, you won. Um, I'm happy to help you now in the general election. I want to make sure a Democrat holds the seat. I'll endorse you. I can do it publicly. I can do a press release however you want. I'll raise money for you. I'll knock on doors for you. I'll ask my volunteers to knock on doors for you. He said, great. I said, I do have one request. Uh, I'd love it if you drop that FEC complaint. Um, and my support will not hinge on your decision. I'll still be happy to do those things. But as a gesture of goodwill, I'd appreciate it if you drop the complaint. And um, he looked at his brother, and his brother said, uh, you know, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm afraid the missile's already left the silo. Sometime later, Jeff received a copy of the FEC complaint in the mail. He showed it to his lawyer, and she prepared an affidavit for him to sign. An affidavit claiming Jeff Smith had no knowledge of who was behind the postcard. This, of course, was not true, but Jeff signed it anyway. Now, this was a big step. Making a false statement on an affidavit in response to a federal investigation, that took him out of wrist-slap territory and into potential prison territory. But Jeff didn't really appreciate the magnitude of this much larger crime, because it was still linked in his mind to that smaller original one, that technically illegal coordination over a postcard. And plus, the campaign was over. He'd lost. He knew he'd never do anything like this again. It had left a bad taste in his mouth the first time. He was worried about implicating his staff people who'd met with Skip Olson, and he was already in debt from his race and worried about paying a potential fine himself. And so for a variety of reasons, um, none of which I say to excuse my, my terrible mistake, uh, I just went ahead and signed it. Mm-hmm. I just figured, I did a, you know, a instant calculation in my head. I know there's hundreds, if not thousands, of these situations across the country every election cycle. There's always accusations of coordination. Most of the time, they're probably right, but it's probably not provable. And I assume this complaint will just fall into that huge stack that they'll look into, not be able to figure anything out definitively, and, you know, that'll be that. And in fact, for two years, basically nothing happened with the FEC case. During that time, Jeff made another bid for elective office, this one successful, and got himself elected to the Missouri State Senate. And then about right after I got elected to the Missouri Senate, things heated up again. And Skip called my friend Steve Brown and said, they're going to, they want to talk to me. And uh, Steve called me and told me that. And he said, you know, they're going to talk to Skip, but don't worry, I'll take care of Skip. I talked to him and had a long conversation with him. Again, Steve Brown. He says he tried to convince Olson not to say anything to the FEC. And I, you know, hung the carrot out there of working on future campaigns with me and Jeff and making some money if he were to, you know, fall on, sort of fall on his sword and have this investigation end with him. Uh-huh. And did you think that he was going to do that? 
I was not 100% confident that he was going to do that. Now, at this point, Steve Brown was an assistant attorney general for the state of Missouri. So he, of all people, knew that it was illegal to do what he was doing, to try and get Olson to lie to the FEC. But he says he was thinking about it not like a lawyer, but a politician, the same way Jeff was. That original infraction was so minor and technical, about a postcard. And there was a lot at stake now. He and Jeff both had exceeded everyone's expectations with that campaign. Their political fortunes were on the rise. Steve was worried that an FEC violation would damage all that. And he figured, who would ever find out about a private conversation like this anyway? Plus, it's not like the FEC has a reputation for aggressively pursuing campaign finance violations. Many people consider it a bit of a joke as an enforcement agency. And for about a year after Olson talked to the FEC, nothing happened. During that time, Steve Brown left his job in the attorney general's office and also got himself elected to the state legislature on the House side. So now he and Jeff were going to be serving together. Things were going great. And then, in the winter of 2007, the FEC came out with its report saying they were dropping the case. Skip Olson was just too unreliable a witness. Steve Brown recalls getting the news. Jeff called me up and said, I've got a present for you. I've got to come by and show it to you. And he comes by and gives me a copy of the, uh, of the final report that sort of closes the matter. And I sort of say to him, boy, I think we really dodged a bullet on this one. And at that particular point in time, I, I did think we were, this was over. In fact, reading the report, it only reinforced the notion that the FEC wasn't much of an investigative body. They never even talked to Steve Brown, although he did see his name mentioned. A footnote in the investigation said, Skip Olson says Steve Brown helped provide the money for this effort. We, something on the lines of, we doubt that this person even exists. We've been unable to locate him and doubt that he even exists. And at, the time, at that particular time when the FEC wrote that, my name was on the ballot uh-huh. in Missouri. <laughs> but be that as may, they closed their investigation at that point. And that is the point where the matter would have died, if not for one of the strangest and most random twists you can imagine. Late afternoon on a Wednesday in October 2008, a 69-year-old attorney found a wicker basket next to his car, an Acura, in the parking garage of his office. When he picked up the basket, it exploded, severely burning his hands and face. The police could find no motive. This man didn't seem like the type of guy who would provoke an attempt on his life. Who was trying to kill him? They didn't find any suspects, But they did discover that there was another Acura, often parked in that same garage, just a floor away. And this Acura belonged to a divorce attorney. A divorce attorney who happened to represent the estranged ex-wife of one Skip Olson, the practitioner of the political dark arts. Steve called Jeff with the news. He called me one day right after session and told me that Skip Olson was being investigated for a car bombing of Skip's ex-wife's divorce attorney. And, uh... We were just like, oh, my God. And then Steve told me that Skip actually had a, was also being investigated for weapons, illegal weapons possession and, and, and mortgage fraud and bank fraud and uh, had a, also been convicted before of, of uh, cocaine distribution and domestic violence, domestic abuse, just a whole litany of things. And we had thought, had a hunch that Skip was a little bit shady, but we, of course, had no idea of all of that. You didn't think that he was capable of murder? No. Jeff worried, what if Skip tries to cut a plea deal by saying, I have damaging information about two state lawmakers? So he and Steve met to talk it over. Well, Steve comes to my house and uh, invites, and one of my former staffers from 2004 um, comes over and and we discuss 
how we're going to handle the situation. Mm-hmm. I say, hey, uh, I'm I'm already out there. I signed an affidavit, okay, saying that I didn't know anything about this. So I'm just going to stick to that. And my former staff person in 2004 said, hey, this is the word of one, you know, cocaine distributing, wife beating, convicted felon against the word of a state representative and lawyer, um, Steve Brown, and political science professor and state senator. Uh, Who are they going to believe? And I agreed with that. And I said, I think we should just, you know, stick to the story. Mm -hmm. So Steve, you know, called me several times over the course of, you know, a couple months. And we met in person and, you know, um, discussed all of this frequently. And little did I know that that entire time he was wearing a wire. So that when you, when you were meeting at your house, he was wearing a wire. Yes. He had you on tape saying, I'm he had me on to tape my story. saying the following. I said something to the effect of, did I know, you know, did I know that Skip was going to do that postcard? No, I didn't know. But I guess, you know, you could say that I had a pretty good hunch. So I say something to that effect, uh, Right. Something pretty close to that on, on tape. So why, you might be wondering, was Steve Brown taping this conversation? Well, it turns out that three years earlier, when Steve had had that conversation with Skip Olson, the one where he tried to keep him from testifying to the FEC, that conversation in which he'd promised material rewards if Olson lied to federal investigators, during that conversation... Skip Olson had been wearing a wire on Steve. When the feds went to investigate Olson for his various illegal activities, they found this recording, along with a stack of other ones. It appeared surreptitiously recording people with whom he was conducting business was a bit of a habit of Skip Olson's. Sometime after discovering these recordings, FBI agents approached Steve as he was leaving his house. Steve contacted his lawyer. His lawyer found out about the recordings and came back with some very bad news for Steve said, you are in very big trouble. Uh, There's going to be a felony conviction. You're going to lose your law license. You're going to lose your political career. The job now is to try to keep you out of jail. So that that came down instantaneously. Steve says that right at that moment, his attorney laid out the strategy for keeping Steve out of jail. And of course, that uh, includes assisting the federal government in building their case against Jeff. You know, here I was, I I mean... Jeff and I, over the years, would talk for hours, okay, into the middle of the night, on the phone constantly, and here I was going to have one of those conversations with Jeff, knowing that the purpose was to get him to say things to incriminate himself that would ultimately get him prosecuted. And what are your thoughts? I mean, I, I, what were you thinking at that time? Uh, it... It's it's really very hard to put into words. These were it was it, you know it, it was a dark dark day. I mean, this is a crappy situation, uh, and if Jeff were sitting across from me right now, I'd apologize to him for doing it. But uh, it was clearly what was going to happen. I had lost my life for Jeff. Okay, I lost my political career. I lost my law license. I lost. A reputation, and I lost all that in an attempt to help Jeff, and that was as far as I was prepared to go. You know, uh, to be honest, sorry, Jeff, 
uh, you're a good guy. I had hoped and planned to do great things with you, but I'm not, I'm not risking, I'm not taking away from my two children and my wife for you or anybody else. And so that got, you know, thinking about them is what really got me thinking like what I needed to do to keep myself out of jail. turns out being a great cooperating witness and someone's closest friend, there's a lot of overlap. Steve and Jeff would talk about Skip Olson's investigation, and Steve would ask Jeff, what are you going to do if they come to your house? You know, I say at one point on the tape, you know, I'm going to be 90% honest with them. So right there, there's a count of obstruction of justice. Right. In the end, Jeff was charged with nine counts. On the day the feds came to his door and charged him, he went to his lawyer's office. Then she called the U.S. Attorney's Office, and she came back 10 minutes later and said, uh, sat me down with another attorney and said, you know, your best friend has been wearing a wire, you know, for the last couple months, and you're probably going to go to prison. So I drove to my parents' house. I called them, told them I, I needed to come over and talk to them. It's only about five minutes away, but it was probably the longest five minutes of my life. And I told them, hey, guys, listen, I made a big mistake in my first campaign and immediately afterwards, and uh, I'm probably going to go to prison. And let me explain what I did. And um, my mom's response was, uh, you know, I probably could have predicted. She said, I knew this was going to happen. I told you that politics was dirty. I told you not to get mixed up in this. I told you that you shouldn't have ever run for office. Maybe not what I needed to hear right at that moment, but uh, but I understood, you know, where, where she was coming from because she had been the loudest voice from the start telling me it was the stupidest idea she'd ever heard for me to run for office. Jeff was sent to federal prison in Kentucky to serve his one-year sentence. He stood out in many ways there. 5'6", 120 pounds, white, Ph.D. Plus, he was one of the few people in the facility not serving a drug sentence. In fact, his fellow inmates had a hard time figuring out, wait, how exactly did you wind up here? They thought I, like, embezzled millions, or, like, they're like, man, you pull some Blago you know, because, like, the Blagojevich stuff was happening. I'm like, I didn't get any. They're like, then why'd you end up here? I'm like, it wasn't about money. They're like, man. And they'd always be like, what's wrong with you? End up in prison, you didn't even get no money? They thought I was really stupid. I mean, they thought I was really stupid. They're like, I'm in prison for a postcard? During his time in prison, Jeff had a lot of time to think about that postcard. His own mistakes in allowing it to happen, but also the utterly improbable chain of coincidences that allowed that postcard to come back and get him. If Skip Olson had just put the proper disclaimer on that postcard, for starters, identifying the organization that he had in fact gone to the trouble to properly set up, or if Skip Olson hadn't been charged with trying to car bomb his ex-wife's divorce attorney, or if he hadn't had a penchant for surreptitiously recording conversations with business partners, take out any one of those things, and Jeff Smith probably wouldn't have been sitting in a prison cell. And then there was Steve Brown, his best friend who'd worn the wire. It's a hard thing to get over. In the beginning, Jeff says, he had a lot of bitterness towards Steve. 
But early on, Jeff found a mentor at the prison, a former drug dealer serving a multi-year sentence nicknamed KY. KY overheard Jeff talking about Steve Brown to some other inmates. KY, soon thereafter, like, took me aside because somebody had asked me in, in like, a group setting, you know, kind of jokingly asked me, hey, you know, man, let me get after your, let me get after your boy, you know, I'll have someone get after your boy, basically like, you know, mm-hmm. joking around saying, hey, we could have someone go right, do right. something to Steve Brown. And I was sort of like, you know, just humoring him, like, oh, what are they going to do to him? What are they, you know? And KY took me aside and said, man, you got to put that dude out of your mind. Don't even think about him. He's like, my brother-in-law told and got me here. He's like, he's like, that my first year, that's all I could think about. You know, what I was going to do to that when I got out. And he's like, you know, I, you can't do time like that. You see these other dudes that all they're doing about is worried about the dude who told on them and what they're going to do to him when, when they get out. And, you know, and all this. He's like, you just you can't get through your time. You got to focus on positive stuff. What happens if you don't? Like, what, 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 what happens? You just, there's too much. I mean, you just eat yourself up. Like, you go back in your in your cell at night and you're just sitting there, like, thinking about it. You can't do that. Like, you, you can't get through. I mean, I had this little bit of time compared to those guys. Most of those guys had 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. It's just a miserable experience. It's just miserable being away from the people you love. And, like, prison sucks. And it sucked even more precisely for the reason that prison is supposed to suck. He had time to think about what he'd done. And there was a lot to jog his memory in the transcripts of the secret recordings Steve Brown made. At a certain point during the several months in which Steve Brown is recording, the feds approach Jeff and question him. Jeff lies to them about what he knows about Skip Olson. Later, in conversation with Steve Brown, he goes back and forth about what he should have done. At one point, he says, quote, Do you think I made a huge mistake today telling them I didn't know who did the mailer? If I called them back, would that change things? But then later in the same conversation, he tells Steve, if the feds come and interview you, quote, can you just shade it at all? During another moment, he appeals to Steve to blame the whole thing on one of his staffers who'd coordinated with Skip Olson, who'd since died. Another time he tells Steve, quote, I hate to say this, the only way they can get me is if you or Nick, another former staff member, says something. And when Steve refers on tape to the conversation he had with Skip Olson, where he tried to get him to lie to the FEC, Jeff says, quote, you can't tell them that. And, quote, you'd be an utter fool to tell them you crossed over the line. To Steve Brown, it felt like he was the one being betrayed by his best friend. There were times when it was clear to Jeff that the heat was on. Okay, The FBI had visited him. He now knew that extreme consequences were attaching to our actions. Okay, And the only thing that came to his mind during that time was to continue to tell me to lie and put myself at risk. I mean, what if he had said, Steve, I love you. You're my best friend. I can't ask you to do this anymore. I'm going to go talk to these people and see what I can get done. He never said that. All he could tell me to do was lie. I understand why he would, why he would feel betrayed by that. Really? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it was, it, was, it was not a good moment for me, you know? Why, why didn't you tell him that, though, do you think? Don't worry. You, you just protect yourself, basically. Don't, you know, like, talk to the feds if you need to, et cetera. Alex, man, if you talk to a thousand people in the world that were in a situation that all similar to what I was in, mm-hmm. you, and you asked a thousand of them 
tell me the truth. Why didn't you go to, to you know, the, one of the only other people that could have gotten you and go to the feds and just tell them any, whatever it was? I don't think you're going to find many of those thousand that will honestly tell you. I, yeah, I wish I would have just, I should have gone to tell them, hey, go to the feds and tell them anything that, everything that happened. I just don't think you're going to see that much. I mean, you feel like you're a hunted prey when the feds come knocking on your door at 6.30 in the morning. And you're right. Of course I should have been like, Steve, you do what you need to do. But, you know, but I felt sort of like we had made this agreement long ago. And for any one of us to, to go soft now was to, you know, was to um, get us all, you know, into trouble. I mean, the way we talk about it, it's like there were like six dead bodies in vacant <laughs> houses somewhere. I mean, it's just so silly. I just didn't feel that compelled to say to Steve at that point, we need to let them know everything. In the years since Jeff was released from prison, he's managed to put his life together. He got married, had a kid, landed a job teaching public policy at the New School in New York City. He's written a book, although he still needs a publisher. Steve Brown has found it a bit more difficult. He still has his wife and his children, but he can't practice law anymore, can't do politics, and he's yet to successfully transition to a new career. It's tough to do in your mid-40s. They both say they've moved on from this. Neither wishes the other ill. But the two men haven't spoken since the day Jeff found out that Steve was wearing a wire. Betrayal. That's a hard sin to forgive. Alex Bloomberg is a producer for our show, often heard on the Planet Money podcast. Coming up, the intoxicating effect of guns, spying, and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This is American Life, Myra Glass. Each week on our show, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, Mortal versus Venial. We have stories of people trying to figure out just how bad they are. How bad is bad? We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, The Disenchanted Forest. So lying is a sin, right? And lying to ourselves is also wrong. But what about the lies that we all collectively believe because they make us feel better? They give us hope. How bad are those? Mortal? Venial? Less than venial? Jonathan Goldstein has this story about confronting the truth. Honorable Animals of the Forest Council, Secretary Otter and Chairman Skunk, I'm sorry, but I must interrupt. I know that time is of the essence, so I will keep my remarks brief. I stand before you not an arrogant hare, nor a flashy hare, as some of you would have it, but merely a hare who cares about this forest and all of its creatures. I've not come here to cast aspersions on the tortoise, this is not a time for partisanship. Whether you be a hair man or a tortoise man, we must all work together. But to save the forest from its impending doom, it's important you know the truth about the race known as tortoise versus hare. Look, I know how this makes me look. The hare is a poor loser, you say. The hare has a problem with tortoises. Well, I'm going to stop you right there. Let the record show that I've nothing against turtles of any kind. 
The snapping turtle is godfather to 27 of my kids for crying out loud. But if you think there is any chance that tortoise beat me fair and square, you are deluding yourselves. Tortoises don't have a reputation for being slow. They are slow. Everyone knows this. It's not a question. It's not debatable. It just is. So imagine my surprise when one morning I wake up to discover the entire forest is talking about how I challenged the tortoise to a race. Think about it. Why would a hare challenge a tortoise to a race? It doesn't make any sense. What would it prove? If I win, I'm an ass If I lose, I'm an embarrassment to my species. Oh, how I was vilified after that race. In the picture they ran on the cover of the Forest Post, I'm pulling my whiskers out, stomping on my top hat and yelling at a judging official. There I was, the arrogant buck-toothed hare with the fabulous libido that everyone loves to hate, finally receiving his comeuppance. And the lies that were told about the race itself... Why would I stop just shy of the finish line and eat a large turkey dinner with all of the trimmings? Or why would I pull out a beach chair and take a sun tanning break? First of all, I burn easily. And second, what am I, an idiot? In the days after the race, when I put forth my multiple tortoises in multiple forest nooks theory, I was labeled a paranoid. A conspiracy nut, not to mention a speciest for suggesting that tortoises all look the same. But I knew then, as I know now, that there was a network of them. Tortoises, all working in cahoots, stationed behind trees, hiding in briar patches all along the racing route. Nonetheless, the tortoise was awarded the title of fastest in the forest, and I'd no choice but to shake his wrinkled little green hand and congratulate him. Dear fellow forest dwellers, back to the business at hand of this emergency meeting. As Smokey Bear alerted us this morning, the forest is burning. Time is of the essence. With all due respect to the authority of this council, sending the tortoise as messenger to alert the creatures of these woods that there's a fire raging and they must run for their lives, not the best choice in the world. The tortoise left three hours ago, but if you rise up onto your toes, you can still see him creeping along down there at the bottom of the hill. So he cheated, and normally I would let this go. Who among us has not cheated at one time or another? Possum has cheated at checkers. Fox has cheated on his taxes. And I'm the first to admit that because of my own arrogance, I've cheated myself out of your friendship. And I've also cheated with some of your wives. But the point is, we can no longer let this tortoise charade go on. If we don't do something now, lives will be lost. So just give me the okay to get running, and as soon as I pick up my top hat at the blockers, fill my jogging pipe with tobacco, eat a light dinner of sprouts and tam-tam crackers, and get my retainer inserted, I'll be on my way. 
All in favor, say aye. For the love of this forest and all that is good, please say aye. Jonathan Goldstein, his story about the tortoise and the hare is itself based on a retelling of the Aesop's fable by the 18th Baron of Dunsany, Edward Plunkett. Jonathan's the host of the CBC radio show and podcast, Wiretap, which you can hear on many public radio stations and you can get from the iTunes store where a version of this story first ran. Deck three, the geeks come out at night. So because uh, the line between a mortal and a venial sin can be kind of hazy, sometimes the only way to know exactly where the line is is just to test it. And that is particularly true when you're little. Where your parents set the line, well, you know, sometimes you need to figure out if you agree with your parents on where that line is. Jonathan Menhivar tells this story about a time that he tested that line. When I was in junior high, I spent a lot of time with this kid, Tommy. That's not his real name. We went to the same school, but... We ran in different circles, and then we started hanging out in Boy Scouts. And Tommy scared the hell out of me. I came from a strict household. Not violent strict, but come here. Take a close look at these cabinets and tell me you don't see the dust kind of strict. So I was obedient and stuck to the rules. Tommy was like my real-life after-school special. He did all the stupid things I knew I had to avoid if I didn't want to get in trouble or end up hurt. We all had BMX bikes, but Tommy was the only one who would try crazy jumps. He lifted weights and got bad grades. Tommy's house was the first place I saw porn. And a gun. We were in his parents' bedroom, and he pulled his dad's pistol out of a nightstand drawer and tried to show me how to load it. I left the room before the next scene of this very obvious plot could unfold. The miracle of Tommy was that he got away with things. He didn't get caught, and he didn't get hurt. At least, not that bad. When I was with him, the world seemed bigger. He was always blowing right past boundaries that I didn't even know how to approach. One day, Tommy told me he had a huge crush on a neighbor who lived across the street from him, this married woman who was pretty in a metal video kind of way. She was blonde with that super short haircut Demi Moore had in Ghost. And Tommy said he'd seen her naked. He told me that sometimes at night, he'd get all dressed up in black clothes and sneak out of his house so he could look in her bathroom window. He said he'd seen her come out of the shower. To me, the whole thing seemed more frightening than sexy. And wrong. Tommy didn't seem to have that problem. So Tommy came to my house for a sleepover. I think we'd stopped using that word, but that's what it was. I was used to putting on my pajamas at six and settling in for the night. Tommy showed up with a duffel bag and came into my room, clearly prepared for something else. He shut my bedroom door, opened the bag, and pulled out all these homemade weapons he'd made in his dad's garage. There were several foot-long swords made from pieces of sheet metal with little wood handles, and a weapon called a sai, like the one the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Raphael used. God, I loved Raphael. Anyhow, um, Tommy took all the weapons and stuffed them in between my mattress and box spring and pretended like it was all totally normal, which I did too. Then we did your standard sleepover stuff, ate some pizza or whatever, and I fell asleep watching Saturday Night Live. A little after midnight, Tommy woke me up. He said it was time for night maneuvers. 
Night Maneuvers was this game Tommy and a friend had made up, where they'd basically taken all the things we were into, role-playing games and Atari and ninjas, and they tried to make them real. They would dress up at night in black and run these little missions around the neighborhood, sneaking around and sometimes going into people's yards to see what could be seen. That was Night Maneuvers. We snuck out my bedroom window and ran from shadow to shadow on my street, hiding behind cars and bushes so no one would spot us. We were both wearing black. Tommy was the one wearing a backpack with swords in it. My heart was racing, but it wasn't actually fun. We hadn't gone far. We were still on my street, just a few houses away, and I was sure we'd get caught. Each time we went for it, we had to run through these big, bright spots from the streetlights and then crouch down again. Every time, I would hesitate and fumble, thinking, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, I'm going to get caught, I'm going to get caught, I'm going to get caught. It never got easier. But Tommy did it with grace, like this was his Olympic sport. We went down the street, snuck around in the backyard of a friend of mine, and then jumped a fence and ended up near these railroad tracks where there weren't any streetlights. Finally, a place where no one was going to see us. We were safe. And for the first time, I felt just how incredible what we were doing really was. Here at night, letting my eyes adjust to the dark, looking up and seeing whatever little stars were there. It was completely freeing, in a way I didn't even know was possible. I don't think there's anything I could do right now that would give me the sense of confidence and possibility that I felt then. Being outside like that, with no one to watch over me, I thought that that's what it must feel like to be a grown-up. The air felt good in my lungs, the night wide open. I watched Tommy jump into a couple yards and peer through sliding glass doors. From where I stood, safe on the other side of a cinder block wall, Tommy didn't seem to have superhuman calm or ninja moves anymore. He was just a dumbass kid, out at night looking for things to get away with. Same as me. I thought he'd probably never even seen his neighbor naked. We started heading back to my house, and then something happened that sobered me up. It separated the Tommies from the Jonathans. We got near a streetlight and decided to duck behind a car. From the driveway, we could see a man watching TV in his living room. It wasn't long before the man took his eyes off the TV and noticed us. Tommy yelled at me to run, but you know, I'm chicken. So I just stood there while the man caught us and screamed at us, saying whatever we'd done to his car, we were going to pay for. I was sure we'd pay heavily. Then the man looked into my eyes and said the most frightening words I'd ever heard. I know who your parents are. He let me stew in the fear for a while, and then he let us go. We ran back to my house and snuck into my bedroom through the windows. It was like everything we'd just done was rewound back onto the tape never to be heard again. I crawled into bed and felt my heart try to escape my chest for a good half hour. Tommy fell asleep right away. That night was the first and last time I tried night maneuvers. The last time I tried anything, really. I never teepeed anyone's house. I didn't drink until I was in college. I wasn't even tempted. Was something a little bit bad, really bad? I didn't care anymore. Either way, I knew I didn't have the stomach for it. 
and I was totally okay with that. Jonathan Menhivar is the producer for our program. Our program is produced today by Jonathan Menhivar with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Sarah Koenig, Lisa Pollock, Brian Reed, Robin Semi, and Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producer is Julie Snyder. Seth Lind is our production manager. Emily Condon is our office manager. Production help from Matt Kilty. Scouting help from Elna Baker. Music help from Damian Gray from Rob Geddes. Special thanks today to Sam Hudzik, Abdin Palish, Mike Tegeter, Jason Zengerly. Thanks to Mirabert Wintonic for producing help on Jonathan Goldstein's story. Our website, we can get tickets to our May 10th cinema event coming up soon. If you have heard about me talking about this already ad infinitum, you know that we are doing our show on stage. We're beaming it into movie theaters everywhere. We've added David Sedaris to the all-star lineup. David Sedaris now joins Mike Birbiglia, David Rakoff, Tig Notaro, Snap Judgments, Glenn Washington, and others this I say in all sincerity is the most ambitious live event we've ever done, filled with things designed for you to see. Animation, dancing, tickets are going fast. It's one night only, May 10th. Find a movie theater near you at thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International, WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who sees all the long hours that we put in here in the radio show and asks me all the time, What are you running away from? Why don't you just settle down and have a normal life? I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. PRI. Public Radio International.